So this morning we are again in Revelation, and we'll eventually be working through the entire book, God willing. But for now, we're still in the seven letters to the first century churches contained in chapters 2 and 3. And today we're looking at Christ's letter to Thyatira in Revelation 2, 18-29, which I just read for you. As the sermon develops, we will touch on the situation in Thyatira, specifically in the warnings and the instructions that Jesus gives to the church. But to begin with this morning, I think it would be most helpful to start with the portrait that this letter gives us of Jesus. If we look at verse 18, and we look at verse 23, and we look at verse 27, and we put together what these verses tell us about Jesus, we see Jesus here as the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, who searches mind and heart and will give to each according to his work, who has received authority from his Father and will rule the nations with a rod of iron. That's the Jesus that this letter lays out before us. Often, uh, when, when many people think about Jesus, they think about Him as the cute little baby of Bethlehem who grew up to be a real lamb of a man. Kind of, kind of weak, readily ignored, and just basically just pathetically pleading. Who so desperately wants us to just please use your free will to choose me because I'm so lonely. This is the portrait that we are often given of Jesus. A Jesus who just loves us so much and is just so lonely without us and wants us so badly to just choose Him. But as we see around us, He's, he's readily ignored. He's not of much account. He's not, not of much weight, not of much gravity. Sometimes soft people choose Him, you know, but the world can happily go on and ignore Jesus and nothing really bad will happen. This is the portrait that many people have of Jesus. And while there is some, some truth to that portrait, namely that Jesus was once a baby born in Bethlehem, and He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and that each and every one of us does have to decide what we will do with Jesus, and that Jesus does love us and want us to come to Him, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city that stones the prophets and kills those who are sent to it. How, how much, how often I would have longed to gather you in my arms, under my wings as a hen gathers his chicks. The picture of Jesus, however, as just pathetically pleading and readily ignored is a picture that just could not be further from the truth. The trajectory of all things is, as we sang earlier in the service, that Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. So everywhere that, that the sun shines is to be Jesus' domain. 
He will make the nations His heritage and the ends of the earth His possession. He shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel should they resist His rightful rule. According to Psalm 2, which is alluded to here in verses 27, or sorry, 26 and 27. So Jesus isn't pathetically pleading with sinners to come to Him because He is so lonely without them. Rather, Jesus is graciously offering terms of peace upon the condition of surrender to those, to we, who have been traitors to His throne. We often think about the Gospel as being the good news of personal salvation from sin. And the Gospel is not less than that, but it is more. The good news is that Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. There is a kingdom coming, which as Nebuchadnezzar saw in a dream in Daniel chapter 2, there is a kingdom coming which shall break in pieces all these other kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it, that kingdom, shall stand forever. After the sermon this morning, we're going to sing Psalm 2 to the tune of Heart the Herald Angels Sing. And it sounds funny to our ears, our modern Western ears, to sing in such a jubilant tone. Them with iron rod you'll break, smashing them in pieces small. Or for his anger soon may burn, blessed are all who in him hide. But is it not good news worth being jubilant about? That Jesus shall reign. And that the enemies of Jesus shall be smashed into pieces. And that His anger shall burn against them that oppose Him. Is that good news or is it not good news? And if it is, then let us sing it jubilantly. Personal salvation from sin is the center of the gospel. But it is not the circumference of the gospel. The good news that Christians believe and proclaim is the ultimate victory of Jesus over His and over our enemies. And the restoration of all things in a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells after He has gathered out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Matthew 13, 41. And 1 Peter and 1 Corinthians 15 and so on and so forth. This is to be the end of all things. In the meantime, we are in a war zone on two fronts. First, we're in the middle of a war internal to each of us who have come to faith in Christ Jesus. In which war, as Galatians 5.17 says, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. Are you winning this war? 
Are you even fighting this war? Revelation 2.23 tells us that Jesus searches mind and heart and He will give to each of you according to your works. And bear in mind that Jesus' eyes are like a flame of fire according to Revelation 2.18 which as Joel Beakey says means that the Lord Jesus has eyes that can burn through every conceivable facade and defense that we can devise to hide our true selves from others. When His eyes are on you, He sees right through you. Could it be truly said of you, of you, by Christ Jesus, who sees right through you, that your latter works exceed the first? As he says of some of those in Thyatira here in Revelation 2.19. Beaky says, do you know what I find when I look around the conservative reformed church? I find Christians with a watertight theology and systems of belief. But even here, I see that we are slow to learn from God's word. Beaky asks the penetrating and convicting questions. I wonder if the Lord were to assess your life, would He be able to say that your works in these last few months were more and of a better spirit than your first works? That your latter works exceed the first? How much are we even concerned about progress in the Christian life? Brothers and sisters, we are expected to fight the war on the internal front. That war between the flesh and the spirit. And we are to make progress in that war until Jesus has put all his enemies under his feet. Does this sound like salvation by works? God forbid. We're saved by grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. But as Martin Luther famously said, though we are saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. The Apostle James said, faith apart from works is dead. James 2.26. Paul says in Romans 8.13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body... You will live. We must understand that the grace of God is not given to us as a license for sensuality. As Jude puts it in verse 4 of his epistle. Nor should we go on sinning that grace may increase. As Romans 6.1 has it. And this leads us to what was going on in Thyatira. And the second front on which we need to fight a war until Jesus has put all his enemies under his feet. In first century Thyatira, there was a woman in the church who claimed to be a prophetess, speaking for God. And as Revelation 2 and verse 20 puts it, she was teaching and seducing Christ's servants to practice sexual immorality 
and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, of course, if she was saying that you could leave Christ and forfeit eternal life and practice sexuality, sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols, then her teaching wouldn't have been so seductive and dangerous to the Christians at Thyatira. Because everyone already knows that you can leave Christ and forfeit heaven to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Right? So what she must have been teaching was a concept of grace. In which grace means that you don't have to be very strict in how you live. You shouldn't be judgmental toward the decisions that other Christians make. It's okay with Jesus if you dabble in sin. I mean, maybe you would prefer if you don't. But if you do, it doesn't really matter. Because after all, He is gracious and understanding. Right? Hebrews 4.13 We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So, I mean, yes, Jesus would prefer if you don't practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. But, I mean, if you do, well, grace. Right? A, a, a sympathetic and an understanding high priest. So, don't worry about it too much. Don't be legalistic. Right? Specifically in Thyatira, there were what was called trade guilds. Which would be something like modern day labor unions, perhaps, or um, a certification where you can't practice your trade without being part of the union or, or without having the proper certification or whatever. You had to be part of these trade guilds to ply your trade. The problem is that there was, there were these things called guild feasts which were probably something much like staff Christmas parties or whatever, except that they were compulsory in the case of Thyatira and guild feasts. And at these guild feasts, there was much sexual immorality and even offerings to idols. This woman in the church, metaphorically called Jezebel, in an allusion back to Ahab's wife of the same name a couple millennia earlier, who was a wicked woman in her day who led the Israelites astray from the pure worship of Yahweh. This Jezebel in Thyatira was saying, not only is it okay to go to these parties, which, which may or may not have been true, I don't know, but she was evidently saying that it was okay to participate in the offerings to idols and to indulge in the sexual immorality which took place at these parties once some feasting had occurred and some imbibing had occurred. Listen, we have to be at war not only within ourselves in terms of the battle between flesh and spirit such that we don't partake of these things that we don't gratify the desires of the flesh which are against the spirit. More than that, we have to be at war outside of ourselves with such perversions of the gospel as this Jezebel was bringing into the church. 
When people start talking about grace being a license for sensuality, and that we can go on sinning that grace may increase, or if they're not quite so bold as to say that, just acting like sin is not really a big deal because, well, you know, grace. And if you have the audacity to claim that someone needs to repent, and if you have the audacity to move toward church discipline in such a case, you're just being legalistic. We have to be at war, not only within, within ourselves in this battle against the flesh and the spirit, but we have to be at war with such perversions of the gospel which would separate orthopraxy and orthodoxy, right living from right doctrine. We need to oppose that kind of Christianity. For that kind of Christianity is really no kind of Christianity at all. So Jesus indicts the church at Thyatira for tolerating that woman Jezebel. So evidently there were those who were like, well, we don't, we don't see it the same way as Jezebel. We don't go to the guild feasts. We don't partake of these things, but we don't want to be legalistic. We want to make sure that we are a gracious church where all sorts of different types of people can be accepted. And if, I mean, if Jezebel here has a different understanding of grace, who are we to say? Right? Something like this is what was going on here. And Jesus indicts the church at Thyatira for tolerating that woman, Jezebel. Revelation 2.20 It is not, therefore, just heresy. Doctrine outside of the bounds of Christian orthodoxy, which is legitimate ground for church discipline. But also, licentious living is legitimate ground for church discipline. And the religiously worded perversion of the biblical understanding of grace, which would seek to undermine any call to holiness and any expectation of repentance on the part of offenders of God's holy law, even that religious error is grounds for church discipline. It is not to be tolerated. Don't bring that nonsense into the church. God's people must therefore recognize that not only is there a battlefront of flesh versus spirit inwardly, but there is a clash between the kingdom of God's beloved Son and the domain of darkness, to borrow a phrase from Colossians 1 and verse 13. And as 2 Corinthians 11, 14 and 15 puts it, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. The battle is not to be fought merely inwardly then. Just you keep yourself from sin. You walk by the Spirit and don't gratify the desires of the flesh. It is that, but it's not merely that. We must be careful to fight against the encroachment of the domain of darkness into the church. And sometimes 
that encroachment is led by those who disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Like Satan who disguises himself as an angel of light. People come with religious words and with new definitions of holiness, of new definitions of grace, of new definitions of gospel. And they come into the church and we need to say, no, we don't tolerate that stuff here. We want to be really and truly gracious. Look at Jesus, who even here in Revelation 2.21 says that He gave Jezebel time to repent. See that? Even Jezebel gets time to repent. We must do likewise when we see sin and or serious doctrinal deviance in our midst. We must approach lovingly and appeal biblically to the offender. The Lord's servant must be kind to everyone, able to teach, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Who knows, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. This is always our aim, right? Win the man, not the argument. Right? This is always our aim. Restore. Giving that space and that time to repent. But if, like Jezebel, she refuses to repent, we must act in a way unlike the church at Thyatira. And we must refuse to tolerate that woman Jezebel in our midst. This is the marching orders from our commander-in-chief who will one day rule the nations with a rod of iron. And with whom, this passage says, we will rule over the nations with a rod of iron. According to Revelation 2, 26 and 27. We are to work with and under and according to the instructions of Jesus who is subduing His enemies and putting them under His feet. This includes a certain amount of intolerance then. Tolerance is the order of the day, right? So it's culturally unpalatable that we would say that a certain kind of intolerance is part and parcel of living out the Christian life, and part and parcel of a healthy biblical church. Living under and according to the instructions of Jesus includes a certain amount of fighting. Again, this is unpalatable to the culture around us. I'm not talking about the level of fists and weapons. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. We're not jihadists. We're Christian jihadists who promote Christ's rule by the sword. right? But rather to the contrary, as 2 Corinthians says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. 
A certain amount of intolerance and a certain amount of fighting is part and parcel of what we need to be doing. In keeping with the fact that Jesus is presently proclaiming terms of surrender to his enemies. But one day that offer expires and he shall rule the nations with the rod of iron. And according to this passage, we shall rule the nations with the rod of iron with him. It's keeping with the trajectory of where things are going that in the meantime, we are like ambassadors in a foreign country proclaiming the message from our home country to the country in which we reside and work and operate that there is an invasion coming our king proclaims terms of surrender be forewarned right we're not fighting you now i don't have a gun i come unarmed but be aware that this is the end of all things and you need to decide what you're going to do with my king right in the meantime there is a certain amount of intolerance and fighting that we need to be doing until Jesus returns. Think of just how incompatible a concept of grace in which holiness doesn't matter, in which exclusivity of truth doesn't matter, in which rightness and wrongness doesn't matter. Imagine just how shocked the people who think that's what grace is are going to be when Jesus returns with a rod of iron to smash his enemies. They're going to think Jesus is being legalistic. They're going to think Jesus doesn't understand what grace is. Think about that. Whatever our concept of grace is, it has to account for Jesus coming back with a rod of iron. As we do this intolerance and as we do this fighting, we must be especially vigilant over the purity of the church. For as 1 Corinthians 5, 12 to 20, or sorry, 22 to 23 says, What have we to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. That's 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13. So, so here's... To summarize how we're seeing all of this in our passage. Okay, this is why I started with the portrait of Jesus. Because Jesus, because Jesus is He who is the Son of God, whose eyes are like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze, who searches mind and heart, and will give to each according to His word who has received authority from his father and will rule the nations with the rod of iron. Because this is who Jesus is and because this is where history is going, we must line up with Jesus and fight with Jesus in this battle where he, which he is sure to win. And because Jesus indicts this church for participating in sexual immorality, and sacrifices to pagan gods, we need to fight against gratifying the desires of the flesh, which are against the Spirit. And because Jesus indicts this church, even those who didn't actually participate in these things, because Jesus indicts 
this church for even tolerating the fact that others in the church are doing these things. We recognize that it's not just this inward piety only which Jesus is concerned about, where we keep ourselves from gratifying the desires of the flesh. Jesus also wants us to fight against and not tolerate Jezebel's in our midst. We must fight against the demonic lies and distortions which keep people out of the kingdom of God. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. So when someone says, well, you know what? I'm just going to go on sinning. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We say, by no means can you do that. For how can we who died to sin still live in it? And if someone says, well, I've accepted Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. And so I'm a carnal Christian. And I gratify the desires of the flesh. But since I trust in Jesus for salvation from sin, then I know that I will be saved. Then we say, nonsense. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Romans 8.13 As... Distortions come not only from, for example, the, the emperor cult, as we've been talking about in the other letters to the churches in Revelation. As distortions come not only through the worship of Greek gods like Apollo, as distortions come not only from outside the church, but inside the church. The Jezebels, the angels of light within the church. We need to say, no, we don't tolerate that. We must be ready and prepared to be appropriately intolerant and to wage war not with the weapons of the flesh but against arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of Christ so that people will be warned of the impending wrath of the Jesus we see before us in this passage and understand that the terms of peace include unqualified surrender and crossing the lines, the battle lines. This is an admittedly exhausting and often unpleasant task. Here's some encouragement. One day the night will be over and the morning will come. Jesus says here in this passage that He will give to the one who conquers the morning star. Verse 28. 
which is surely a reference to himself, seeing as Revelation 22:16 calls Jesus the bright morning star. So here's the sense of it. We are in a nighttime of sorts now. We are like watchmen eagerly waiting for the morning. In the words of Psalm 130, verse 6, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. And as the reformers of old would say, post-tenebras lux. After darkness, light. After the darkness of this night, Jesus shall appear as the bright and morning star, ushering in an eternal day in which, according to Revelation chapter 22 and verse 5, night shall be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, victory is sure. Victory is coming. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. God has set His Son as King on Zion, His holy hill. And the gathering of the rulers and kings of the earth together against the Lord and against His anointed will prove futile in the end. Therefore, do not make peace with your sin in the meantime. Don't make peace with sin within yourself. Or make peace with sin outside yourself. Like in your church. Let us not embrace an unholy tolerance in the name of grace. Let us tolerate no Jezebel, but line up with Jesus in this war zone until He brings His conquest to its consummation.